It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Good day, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call, presented by Catholic Foundation. Each week, we're here to address the latest health and medical news in our area. And for the past 10 months now, virtually all of our time has been spent focused on the COVID-19 pandemic. That again will be our focus this evening as we endure a dangerous period with this virus. Rapidly rising case counts, increased deaths, as well as hospitalizations. We will hear from Catholic clinical leaders who will give us perspective of the impacts of COVID on its services. Plus, check in with the Benton Franklin Health District for context on current case numbers, the status of vaccines, updates on testing, and continued public health measures that we should all adhere to as this pandemic now moves into its 10th month. We have a lot to cover, so let's get right to it with the Communicable Disease Program Manager at the Benton Franklin Health District. We welcome Heather Hill. And Heather, first of all, maybe give us an update as we talk this evening of of where we're at. I know the numbers have been going up. Are they still going up? And, and what's your level of concern? Thank you, Jim. Yes, we're we're still quite concerned because of the, the numbers, the case rates are really still at, not at a level that we had hoped for. We knew that the same thing would happen after the Thanksgiving holiday as did after Halloween. And, and yes, it, it certainly has. And now we're heading into the few weeks before Christmas And so these are just back-to-back-to-back occasions where we know transmission has been pretty high, and and we're seeing it in the data. So definitely heading in the wrong direction. However, we look back at July when we had such high rates, and the community pulled together and really started doing what needed to happen to get those numbers to decrease. So again, we're, we're really looking to the community to step up and do what's right, put those mitigation um, plans in effect, do what needs to happen to really start slowing the the spread down. You'd mentioned coming out of the Halloween season as that holiday and then approaching Thanksgiving. If my math is correct, I think you have indicated during this time it's usually about 10 days to 14 days after a period of time where maybe that that infection rate might go up. So we are kind of now just entering that period of time after Thanksgiving, correct? Right. We're we're actually kind of at the um, end of where we would see these spikes after Thanksgiving. But Halloween is essentially one night, and a lot of gatherings have been clustered together, whereas when we head into things like Thanksgiving holiday or Christmas holiday, Families tend to gather for longer periods of time. It may not just be a one-day event. You may have company from out of town stay for multiple days. So that can certainly spread this um, result of, of these types of gatherings out over many more days. So our next few weeks are going to be very interesting to watch, and it's certainly a critical time for our community. I know relative to all of these things that we as citizens are being asked to do these mitigation measures, and I know the governor extended uh, some of these business orders uh, into January, and certainly no no one likes to see that. But but w- from a public health standpoint, uh, I know the restaurants have had to go back to the outdoor service. Um, 
is there data that shows that's an issue as opposed to other forms of business that are allowed to stay open? Sure. You know, there is a lot of concern and, and misunderstanding. How come we're doing such drastic measure, measures with re- restaurants and pubs and those types of environments when if you look at our data, we don't really have outbreaks associated to those environments. But Center for Disease Control has looked at this. And when you talk to, when they do investigations and do studies on people who have actually tested positive or those that have tested negative, and then looked at the activity they were involved in during that 14-day period before they became sick, and that's kind of the timeline we're looking at, and we realized that those who tested positive were 2.4 times more likely to have dined in a restaurant in the last two weeks or out on a patio, outdoor seating, or indoor seating. And for those who actually went into more the, the pub or the cafe type scenario, they came up with about a four times greater chance that they would actually be COVID positive. So it's a little bit of an indicator that even though we don't have good outbreak data associated with specific restaurants or eating venues, there's evidence that shows that there's a a higher probability you're going to come down with COVID if you do frequent those types of locations. But, you know, the other data that we're seeing really is it's so widespread through our community that a lot of what is happening to businesses, schools, other environments is individuals are catching it in their own personal lives through their visits with family, friends, and then they happen to take it to the work site. And that's why we're really encouraging people to, of course, be very, very careful in your personal life. But be extra careful in your business life. You may put yourself and your family at risk in your private life. You may be willing to take a certain level of risk. But when it comes to going back to work and exposing your coworkers or people in the school system or anywhere else where you're around non-family members, be extra careful that you're not putting them at undue risk. Wear your masks. Practice that social distancing wash your hands and do everything you can to to keep those people safe that that you're working with on a daily basis. And does the data, the latest contact tracing that you've done, is that an indicator that a lot of these increases are due to these gatherings and these uh, the outbreaks are coming there as opposed to the business community or certain schools, as you said? Right. That's exactly what we're seeing. And and kind of on the contact tracing, I know our contact tracers really do make an attempt to get a hold of all the people who actually test positive and those contacts. And there can be some reluctance to give information to our contact tracers. And we just want to remind the public that it's it's that information we get out of those conversations that help guide what we need to do in our community. So by providing information, you're helping us understand the outbreak better and make better decisions. And that really does drive, in the long run, what the governor is going to ask happen in our community. So it's so important to be honest with our contact tracers and and most of all have that conversation because it, it will help our community. 
we have you for two segments. Before we go to our first break tonight, I'd like to have you just address where we are with schools in the area. I know, again, those are individual decisions that have been made by the various school districts. But with these rising numbers, what evidence are we seeing that impacts to schools are one way or another with these hybrid learning models that they've employed? Sure. Our biggest challenge in the schools right now is not transmission necessarily in the classroom because we're not seeing outbreaks really associated with individual classrooms. We are certainly experiencing, like I mentioned, um, people catch it at home and then they happen to come to school and then they find out they're positive and expose, potentially expose a classroom or a work environment. And then that classroom needs to quarantine because of the positive individual being there. And what schools are describing is, is certainly some challenges with staffing and not having enough staff to pick up the load when a member has to stay out for their quarantine or isolation. So it really is more of a staffing shortage concern than an actual transmission within the school environment. Where we've seen uh, some very tiny outbreaks is actually in the non-classroom, but more in the administrative side of thing in the offices. So classrooms still seem to be going well. It's just really the, the staffing shortages. We're visiting with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. We have one more segment with her, and we'll get to that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. A reminder, if you missed our part of our program today, Cadillac on Call is available on your favorite podcast platform. Search Cadillac on Call anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Continuing our discussion with Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And before, Heather, we get to maybe that light at the end of the tunnel, talk a little bit about the vaccines that are on the horizon. Give us an update, if you would, on testing in the Tri-Cities. I know uh, the availability has been significantly increased, but but what can you share with us on the availability of testing and, and how that's going? Testing is still staying very, very busy. We saw some record-breaking days right around the Thanksgiving holiday, and then it slowed down a little bit. But I think uh, one important bit of news is in regard to our HAPO test site out at the Track HAPO Center. We have transitioned them over to using the University of Washington lab, which is exactly what the uh, CBC test site uses. And so that cuts the turnaround time for getting your test result back by several days. So it's a much, much quicker turnaround now, identical to what we're seeing at Columbia Basin College test site. And then it has gone paperless like the CBC West site is. So your uh, your time spent actually being tested and going through that whole process once you reach the site will be significantly less on the paperless way versus um, the way they were doing it. And you can sign up for both of those test sites, the CBC and the HAPO, on the uh, health department website um, by linking into where to go for testing. Both sites are listed and then a link to register for your time slot. That website is bfhd.wa.gov. And a question regarding testing as we 
get ready for the next holiday season is when should people should people get tests um, if they're wanting to go visit family members or go travel or any of those kinds of things? What's your recommendation there? It's really important to look at the rules regarding testing of where you're going to. There are certain states, um, such as Hawaii, that require a test and certain kind of tests right before travel. Uh, so plan ahead. Make sure that wherever you're going, what kind of a test do they require, how soon it has to be, you know, how close to the time of travel. So you don't get to the airport or your destination and find out you have to get a test then and there, and it can cost a fair amount of money. So, again, plan ahead. Let's move on to, to the subject of vaccine preparation. And I know I think tomorrow I'm understanding the, the emergency use authorization may be coming from the federal government, which is going to be really a nice uh, thing to see happen. Um, where are we with uh, preparations for that vaccine process that we know it's quite an undertaking going to be? Right. Um, right now in the Tri-Cities, our acute care hospitals are poised and ready. Uh, they've made sure that they have the, re- the freezer capacity and are just anticipating a vaccine arrival very, very soon after the approval of the vaccine. So I know Cadillac is talking about seeing some doses come in within the next week and have already started working with your staff there at the hospital on, on plans for that. And that's actually happening all across the community as providers are, are preparing for how will they roll the vaccine out to their, their clients. Uh, one thing I really want to make sure we don't forget to talk about and let people know that just like with testing scams ongoing, and we talked about them early on, we've now been alerted that there are vaccination scams out there. We've gotten information from some local community members who received uh, phone calls uh, asking for information for their debit card, their credit card, their bank account, then they would be put on a list to receive vaccine. And people need to understand that is totally a scam. There is absolutely nothing legal about what these people are asking you to do. So do not respond to anybody uh, offering you to get on a a vaccination um, list and all you need to do is give your your visa card number or your bank card number because that is a scam. In the second half of our program, we'll be visiting with some colleagues at Cadillac regarding the preparations underway for testing. And I understand uh, on this first, uh, as this rolls out, Heather, across the, the country and certainly in our area, the, the doses are going to be distributed. Uh, there's actually all this uh, intelligence information, all this. It's all pr- mapped out. But, but the priority, obviously, initially is going to be with, with the healthcare community and then the long-term health facilities. That's correct. Hitting those uh, frontline healthcare workers that are at such great risk because of the jobs they're doing. Plus, we want to keep that that population very healthy. And then moving into the most vulnerable population, which is the elderly, and especially the elderly in those long-term care facilities and communal living. Um, then, then it will move on into other more essential workers. And unfortunately, we're still looking at spring, summer of 2021, where we'll have enough vaccine to roll out to the general public. So the point being uh, that our listeners at home, they they should maybe 
pay obviously pay close attention, especially to those scams that you just addressed, and that's sadly too bad again. But to the point of when it's going to be available to the community in general, right. which we're probably thinking spring to summertime. Right. And we've been getting a lot of uh, phone call questions from the community, such as um, if I get the vaccine, how long will it take for it to protect me? And the two, the two vaccines that are coming out quickly, the Pfizer and the Moderna, are both two-dose series. So we know that you'll get some protection from the first shot, but then the second shot really does boost you. But it can take several weeks after that first shot to, to protect you. Another frequent question we get is, well, I already had COVID disease. Do I still need to get a shot? And what the Center for Disease Control is saying is, yes, you still do need to get a shot because we do not know exactly how long your immunity from catching disease is going to last. We're already seeing evidence of people who caught disease last winter, spring, unfortunately have caught it a second time now. So we know that having COVID disease does not necessarily give you long protection. So yes, we will be offering it even to people who've had COVID disease. And why does it, and whether it's this, these vaccines or, or other ones, I know that take two doses. What's, what's the reasons for those? You're really priming your immune system with the first dose. And um, especially in a situation like this, when our bodies have not seen this, uh, organism before, you have to introduce it to the immune system and the immune, immune system looks at it and starts to respond. And then that dose that comes either three or four weeks later really does finish your, um, help your immune system finish creating its response to the vaccine and keeping you protected as long as possible. And even after vaccination and you have a good, robust immune response, it is still not felt that the COVID vaccine will be a lifetime vaccine. It will probably end up being repeated um, at some interval throughout the, you know, the next few years. But Center for Disease Control really hasn't determined that yet because we haven't been following this vaccine very long. I know we have a lot of time to talk about this in the coming weeks, but what's a quick message for you, if you would, on people that might be reluctant to get the vaccine? I know it sounds scary to consider getting a vaccine that is so quick to be produced, but I think it's important for people to realize that the technology behind how most of these vaccines are working in the body has been worked on for many, many, many years. Vaccine researchers have been looking at this type of a vaccine response in the immune system and have been preparing the stage for the time we would need to actually put it into practice. So it's not like it went from absolutely no knowledge of how to make this vaccine and a year later we have a vaccine. The scientists have been working on this type of vaccine production for many, many years already. I get I'm going to give you 20 seconds uh, before we have to let you go, but maybe just a concluding comment of, of the topics that we've talked tonight, uh, where we sit here on uh, December 9th, 2020. Well, I think it's exciting to look at the fact that we're very close to one more tool in our toolkit, but the best way we can protect ourselves in the community is to use all the tools we have at our disposal, and that's the social distancing, 
hand washing, consistent face covering and mask use, and now with the anticipation of vaccine, get that vaccine when it's offered to you. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. As always, thank you so much. BFHD.wa.gov for all the latest information that you need to know. Back with the second half of Catholic on Call in just a minute. listening to Cadillac on Call on 610-KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610-KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by Catholic Foundation. The first patient diagnosed as COVID positive at Catholic Regional Medical Center occurred on March 15th. Since then, the Catholic team has been working virtually around the clock, preparing to deal with whatever the pandemic has brought. Here we are nine months later, and that work is still taking place. The remainder of our program, we want to check in with clinical leaders at Catholic Regional Medical Center. First up is Dr. Kevin Pieper the Chief Medical Officer at Catholic Regional Medical Center. And Dr. Pieper, March 15th seems like years ago, doesn't it? It does. A lot has changed since then, and uh, it's it's been a long year. So, As you reflect, I guess, what is just an initial observation of what that nine months has been like for the team at Catholic? You know, it's um, it's been interesting. I think about way back in March, we were dealing with a virus we didn't know a whole lot about, um, we were faced with shortages of PPE. Uh, we had virtually no testing that was timely. Um, uh, it was there was a lot of angst uh, and concern. Um, uh, it, we didn't know exactly how to treat COVID. I mean, we had some good ideas, but um, um, we uh, we really have learned a lot since then. We, um, our staff is tired. Uh, They're burned out. Uh, They've been pushed to the limit. Uh, Taking care of uh, COVID or other infectious patients is a lot more work, uh, especially for the, uh, you know, I guess for everybody involved, nursing staff, environmental services who are cleaning and disinfecting, the physicians, respiratory therapy lab, uh, just because of, you know, going into a patient room and having to uh, put on a full um, wardrobe of PPE to protect yourself and then take that off in a, in a way that you don't contaminate yourself. Uh, it just makes that work that much harder. You're, you're unable to quickly respond to a patient because you have to do that. Uh, and then you have to carry all that anxiety home to your family of being concerned about, am I going to, you know, bring COVID home and, and infect, you know, my the, my elderly family or any part of my family or my kids. And, and it's gone on for so long, and it's um, been pretty relentless. So our, our staff is definitely feeling that burden. But you must be very proud of them, I know. Oh, incredibly proud of them. And I think of, you know, especially the the ED and the ICU and uh, our general medicine floors and just the amount of work they've done, their willingness to roll with the punches as changes have come, uh, understand why we have to do things one way and then the next day do something different. Um, All the work that's come to our uh, environmental services and having to turn these rooms over and 
get them clean and disinfected and, and our lab and radiology and everybody else, they've worked just so hard this year and um, all just looking for a break. Um, it's a good thing there's hope on the horizon for this year. I know you had touched on that it's always a busy time of year at Cadillac uh, and and a lot of hospitals traditionally just because of the flu season and and just that time of the year when when people are are, are more prone to get ill. Currently, I know we're in a growing community. Cadillac is a growing organization. There's a lot of patients that rely on Cadillac to be able to come and transfer patients if they can't service them in their communities. Um, everything going okay? I mean, is it just a constant uh, effort to try and make sure that all of the needs can be met in that communication that's in place with other facilities around not only the Tri-Cities, but around the region and state? Yeah, and you know, things are going well. It's busy, and uh, we're constantly looking at how do we manage our capacity because all of the other things don't go away. Uh, I said flu has been less this year, but we still have all of the other reasons people get admitted to the hospital, like having a stroke or a heart attack or having pneumonia. Uh, and we have to be ready and able to care for those patients. And so um, we are certainly uh, in communication with our other Providence hospitals. And if we're unable to take a patient, you know, they're um, uh, as a transfer from an outlying facility, they're then referred to our other facilities. We also do a lot of work within the Washington State Hospital Association to ensure we're, we're all working together and meeting the needs because uh, one of the things that's interesting with this current uh, surge is, you know, the March and July surges were sort of spaced out to different geographical regions. Uh, this time we're seeing it everywhere uh, at the same time. So um, what was once kind of little fires or big fires in different areas of the state where you could easily help out, it's really taken a coordinated effort across the state to meet the need as we're all seeing the volumes at the same time. I have just about a minute or so left. If you would, I know uh, you're a physician by training, and and these these public measure or these uh, health measures that we're all being asked to continue to adhere to, we all know them. But from a physician standpoint, what's your message as as we are dealing with this in December? You know, I think uh, we're so close to being able to vaccinate um, that now is not the time to let down our guard uh, and our vigilance on masking and social distancing. Um, I know it's hard. It's been hard on myself and my family as well. We had to cancel Thanksgiving. Uh, We're looking at not having a Christmas with extended family, but uh, it sure sounds better than one of our relatives or one of us getting uh, seriously ill. Um, And there's growing evidence that masking and social distancing, although not perfect, it does work. Uh, It does help a lot. And um, it's when you think about Faced with that or a hospital admission, whether it's an ICU or not, um, seems like a minor step we can take to all protect each other. Very well said. Dr. Kevin Pieper, the Chief Medical Officer of Cadillac Regional Medical Center, thank you for taking the time to be with us. We'll be back with our remaining minutes of Cadillac on Call in just a minute. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program. Continuing our discussion with clinical leaders from Cadillac, we now welcome Kirk Harper, the Chief Nursing Officer and Chief Operating Officer at Cadillac. 
Kirk, uh, welcome to the program. Any idea how many meetings you've led or participated in relative to the coronavirus since March? <laughs> you know, I have not. I've lost count. There has been so many for all that we have done. So, no, it's been uh, quite a number, though. Maybe just on that topic, if you would, just take a quick second to bring the our listeners inside to those meetings. I mean, just a lot of ground is, has been covered. And I know Dr. Pieper had mentioned how things were changing so rapidly on, on treatments and, and advice from the federal government and the clinical experts across the country. Give us a little insight on, on what those meetings were like. And it was, it was a full cross-section of people, wasn't it? It was. I mean, we had so many different representatives from the organization to help us as we looked at all that information that was coming in because, you know, we were learning and evolving and trying to adapt and adjust just with all of that and comparing what specific agencies knew or were providing us and then trying to, com- you know, comprise that so we could get it out to all of our caregivers and providers in a timely and clear manner so they could help, you know, follow it and really keep themselves, you know, safe and understand what we're sending out to because the pace of it was very rapid. And I know the team has, we've talked on this program with you and other clinical leaders from Catholic and and, and physicians and nurses of, of the way the treatments have changed. I know obviously there's been medicines and therapeutics that are available, but even the treatment, the way patients are treated with COVID has evolved over time, all to the benefit of patients, right? Yes. Uh, you know, there's been many things in from a different aspect from what uh, Dr. Pieper probably shared is how we keep our caregivers safe and, you know, run the personal protective equipment, the way we clean and sanitize things, just how we're addressing that on a specific, uh, you know, disease process that at one point we didn't know much about and then we were trying to stay on top of as much as possible. We, again, just with all that information coming in, really trying to, with what we do know and did know at the time, make those, uh, you know, implement those activities so we can make sure we're doing things as we needed it with what we knew. I know the hospital is, it seems like, has always been very busy, even before COVID. And as we enter in, knowing that uh, this next, this, the current surge has raised the, the levels, the hospitalizations are on the rise. How, does, how do you manage that? What is the current status? Is it just an ongoing patients coming, patients going, getting well and treated and, and moved on and so more patients can come in? You know, yes, because being in our, for Catholic, as we're trying to serve our region, we are trying to be available to accommodate those patients as they come from other facilities for their patients to, you know, one, keep them local, and two, so they can receive the care that they need. So, yes, we do, and it is, when you look at our volumes, it's a number that's difficult to understand because what really has changed right now is in the manner of how we care for our patients, meaning that because of all the donning, doffing, and additional care that goes into our patients who are COVID positive, and then just the guidelines that we set forth for all of our patients and providers to follow, even if they are not caring for a COVID positive or a patient under investigation, a PUI as we call them, they still have to follow all those uh, guidelines and because you just don't know. So that's what's really changed the dynamics too, and it impacts the number of patients we can serve and so that uh, influences that also with uh, the number of caregivers we have and providers in what we're doing. I know one of the other concerns, and you've addressed it and Dr. Pieper briefly addressed it too, is is the stress that, that staff is feeling over this time. This has gone on for 
for almost 10 months now, and I know the staff is tired. But one additional thing that I know has been required, at least on the COVID patients, is there's been limited visitors at, at the hospital, and especially those with COVID. Uh, their, their loved ones aren't allowed to be with them, so the staff takes on even an additional burden as a care partner. You know, yes, and care partners are very important to the health and well-being and care of the patients that are, you know, that we're caring for and treating and trying to make better. And with that, it, yes, when someone's not at their side, it does impact them and it adds to the dynamics in which our caregivers and providers are doing at the bedside with and for our patients, which, again, adds to that complexity and the way the care has just changed in, you know, right there at the bedside. And I do have to make uh, and just say, you know, a great amount of gratitude and thanks and appreciation because while rounding on there, it's amazing what we're able and capable to do in healthcare today to help patients. And what our caregivers and providers are doing is amazing. And just, you know, want to say thank you to any and all of them that have an opportunity to, to hear me tonight. And I know that is just such a great, and I know that probably can never be heard enough from that team. And the community has been uh, so appreciative of that. And, and that's meant so much to the team. I know in, you've talked to them too, is, is when they, when they just someone say, Oh, you're a nurse, you're a doc, you, you work at Catholic. Thank you for what you're doing that. I know that means a lot, but, but as a leader of that, of this organization in your role, maybe just a concluding message, if you would, to that team and, and to this community, uh, as we move toward the holiday season and through the holiday season and try and make our way healthily uh, until we can all get vaccinated. You know, an amazing amount of pride in the team that we have that provides care, the collective knowledge and resources when we band together to accomplish all those meetings that we we're referencing at the beginning of, of our uh, time together and how it's evolved and the pace and just getting it all out there. And then what we deliver at the bedside for our patients has been cannot say it enough for what they're doing and a thank you and a great appreciation and it, we make a difference and that's what really want them to know is they make a difference every day in someone's lives. And one final comment I had this question asked of me today is that whether people should and we address this I know even in the summer when the numbers weren't so high people should not defer care right if, especially if, if it's a chest pain or something that could be serious but people should not delay care correct? That is correct. If they, by delaying care, it helps. I mean, unfortunately, it exacerbates the situation. So when they do come in, if they're delaying it, it's even worse or it's progressed in a manner that's more complicated or has complexity to, to treating them. So, yes, delaying care is not to their benefit. It actually can cause more harm. So, yes, please, if someone needs care, they need to be seen and need to go in and, and receive that treatment. And finally, I'm sure uh, you would like to j- jump on the uh the emphasis of continuing, please, to wear masks and follow all these public health measures so we can get to that vaccination. Absolutely. You know, social distancing, wearing your mask, good hand hygiene, as basic as those sound, they do impact us and they do make a difference. And we see the difference in the numbers, whether it's in the hospital, it's in the community. They are impactful. And yes, a a plea for everybody to continue doing those as we get ready with the vaccine coming to administer that. It will all add up and help all of us. Our thanks to Kirk, Dr. Pieper, the entire team at Catholic for their ongoing dedication to caring for patients throughout the pandemic. We're also grateful to all healthcare and first responders for keeping our communities around the region safe. Thank you for joining us. Be safe, be healthy. 
Please continue to follow all of the public health safety measures and together we'll get through this.